Hello and welcome to Renegade Mama. I am your host, Natalie Rees. Today on the show, I speak to Jenny Blythe. Jenny is a birth worker and educator and author of the book, The Down to Earth Birth Book. Jenny had her first child back in 1979, and it was really interesting to hear her journey for pregnancy and birth and how it was back then. Her first birth was a hospital birth, and her last two were free births at home. Her approach to doing something so seemingly radical was just so gentle and calm and, well, normal. I sometimes find in the birth world that we can have a tendency to be fighting for our rights and with good reason too, myself included. But maybe there is another way, a simpler way that doesn't include fighting or asking permission, simply by being and doing. In the interview, we also talk about Jenny's work in Laos, people using free birth as a scapegoat. Her advice for birth preparation, community birth, and I also hear about the body work that she does. What I really like about Jenny is her ability to have things just flow and just not be forceful in life while still getting things done. Truly embracing her feminine energy. Thank you, Jenny, for being on the podcast. It was truly an honor. Welcome, Jenny, to The Renegade Mama. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Natalie. It's great to be here. So, Jenny, uh, what I always get our guests to do at the start is just if you could introduce yourself in your own words and tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, your work, and maybe some personal things about yourself as well. Okay. Um, Yeah, so I think... It's already been said, but my name is Jenny Blythe. Um, I've been supporting women towards and through natural birth for, well, since 1980, which is a year after my daughter was born. And, um, and then my dear friend Marguerite started having babies and I was at the birth of her second child. I'd met her after she'd had her first. And she had a home birth with her second child and there was a midwife who came to that and my GP came to that and um, he'd supported me through my birth and it was a posterior labour, but she did really well. And it was that midwife's first home birth that she was doing, that she was attending. And from that point on, my friend went on to have four more babies and the midwife never made it. And my friend was living up near me. Um, So it would just be us together. um, Me just offering comfort and supporting her. But um, basically I got really interested in supporting birth because after the birth of my first child, it was just like, wow, it's just so much more amazing and so much richer and deeper and um, bigger than I ever realised it was going to be. And I guess that's sort of part of that naivety that we were talking about before. That In some ways you always feel a little naive, but it's not, you know, naive in terms of your capacity to do it. It's just different aspects of having babies and children that you don't really think about until it happens 
And I was already a body worker. So before I had my first child, I was already qualified in body work. And um, so I just kind of said about the women in my neighborhood community, there were a lot of young mothers who'd bought up land very close to us and they were all being pregnant and having babies. So I would just go around and chat with them and um, give them massages and talk to them about what their plans were and were, did they feel prepared and that kind of thing. So it just kind of, just this organic process of, it, it was never an ambition of mine to, to like, oh, I really want to just go to lots of births, but at some point, um, you know, after I'd already been to a number of births, I was thinking, oh, well, I feel pretty comfortable with this. So, you know, maybe it's, it's something that is just going to keep happening. And at one point there was a woman in the neighborhood who was a registered midwife and she came along to the last birth of my friend who we would just be together. And she just came not, not as a midwife, but just to see what it was that we were doing together. And she'd, she'd heard about home births and, you know, she was a new mum herself and she was going to be in, in the area for a while, but she'd been working in Sydney and she came along and after that, and she just kept in the background and, you know, my friend Marguerite just did her beautiful earthy birthing thing. And I just supported her and made sure she was comfortable and tucked her into bed afterwards, <laughs> made a tea and looked after the kids and, and this midwife, this local midwife was just blown away. And she just said, I've never seen anybody do what you two did together. And we just kind of looked at her and went, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and basically what she was saying was what we were not doing that she understood to be kind of a, an imperative part of what happens when you give birth, like mm. clinical checks and things like that. So even though she'd had the theory around home birth, she'd never experienced it. So she just said, well, if that's what it's like, I'm going to start supporting home births. And I said, well, can I come with you? <laughs> and she said, yes. So then I got this experience of being her sidekick for a year or so till she realized there was not much money in it, even though we went to quite a lot of births and they yes. were all pretty straightforward. And at some point she just said, I've got to go back to work to make some money and left me with um, a number of women and I then had to sort of talk to them and say, well, it's me now. Um, you know, you, you're totally fine if you, if you don't feel comfortable with that. And I talked to my family and um, everyone was just like, great, no problem. Let's just do it. Wow. <laughs> so it, it just, and, and really this was back in the days where it wasn't so political and mm. I was kind of vaguely aware that there was some laws around, um, you know, who could practice midwifery. And I wasn't, and I didn't ever think I was practicing midwifery. I was just supporting, I was being invited to births and supporting them. So I guess it was like a version of a, a doula at a, an unassisted, medically unassisted home birth or free birth. Yeah. But I also just assumed that if somebody invited you to be at their birth, then that was okay, that I didn't need someone else's permission in order for that to happen. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of 
how I started. And because I came from a, a background of body work and already kind of a bit nerdy about anatomy and physiology and had prepared really well for my first birth by reading up on birth um, and really trying to understand the whole process, I felt really, it was kind of a very spontaneous thing for me to be approaching birth from a non-clinical perspective, even though I knew that sometimes clinical assessments and evaluations were important. But I also got a very, very good grounding in very straightforward births, very straightforward breastfeeding. Women who didn't have uh, chronic conditions or felt un, you know, unwell other than the, the first few months of um, morning sickness. So from that, I was, was quickly able to start um, recognising um, if things weren't being straightforward. Yes. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is this idea of, um, I guess I was going to call it community birth, so mm. attending each other's births because that's kind of what started to happen in my little community, um, which I'm finding really nice and it just makes so much sense to me to have somebody that you know intimately there at your birth um mm. that you already have that relationship with not to say that you can't form that with a midwife or a doula over nine months either but mm. when you trust somebody so implicitly because they are a good friend of yours or you've known them in the community for whatever reason mm. i think that's you know maybe the way that birth always was in a kind of traditional society because communities were tighter they were smaller um, yeah, and you have a similar kind of environmental ethos, yes. for want of a better word. It's like you, you're, you're all being nourished by the same conditions and circumstances and the, the information that's available to you. And this is a really big um, kind of soapbox of mine about, you know, that we are nourished by things other than who's going to be at the birth and the tests we have and... Uh, where it's going to happen and that we check all those boxes off and we, um, you know, do our exercises every now and again, which are really important, of course. But it's like we only exist because we take in and are supported by elements of the natural environment, like first and foremost. I mean, we're also supported by our relationships with people, but we're... we're, we're we exist because of our relationship with, with the environment. Mm. And, you know, that means the, the air that we expose ourselves to, um, the food that, that we eat and the conversations that we have, the impressions that are made upon us by the people around us and those that are closest to us. Yeah. And, you know, it, it does count for a lot when you've got somebody at your birth that's, you've been at their birth or, you know, they're your next door neighbour yeah and you just are kind of experiencing a lot of the same things together so that capacity to just kind of tune in and uh know each other well is really high yes absolutely i couldn't agree more mm. um and i think the other really interesting thing and i've been talking to some friends about this recently is this idea of sisterhood for a want of a better word like people uh, i think um, these days, sometimes we can 
put so much um, maybe pressure is the word on our husbands, not to say that they shouldn't be involved in the birth process at all. I mean, my husband was there, my main support, both of my births, but there is an interesting thing to be said to start putting that trust in the sisterhood again, because I think that somehow we have been <laughs> pulled apart or we're not as close as we maybe once were or could be uh, to other women. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And um, I think that the, the birthing um, woman's partner is the one who's going to know her the best and the most intimately, of course. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's interesting. I've just been reading Rhea Dempsey's latest book, Beyond the Birth Plan, and she's got some lovely, um, you know, parts in there that are to do with those sorts of relationships that we may hanker for or need through our mm. births. You know, there's the mother figure and the sister figure and yeah, but um, there's, you know, and yeah, the sisterhood, it, it's kind of maybe a little bit of a political word these days, but um, if anything, it's kind of like this solidarity that we need to have with each other as, as, you know, people who give birth and, I've been really thinking about this, um, the notion of transmission, you know, how in different spiritual traditions, it's like, if you're going to take on some kind of practice, you need to be there with the guru and they um, kind of impart this information or this knowledge. And it's, it's sort of somehow like this kind of energetic blessing and it's known as transmission and it's it's considered that you you must be there in the presence of the the master or um, the teacher in order for that transmission to occur properly. Mm -hmm. And a, and a few weeks ago, I I ran into somebody whose birth I'd been at um, about thirty years ago, wow. and it was her second baby first one had been in the UK and she came out to Australia to have the second baby and the first one had been pretty tough and she ended up birthing her baby in the bath and it was very beautiful and she had a friend there um, who had been trying to conceive now this is a really generous offer because it's it's not necessarily something that you that everybody would want to do and it's not kind of recommended to do but a dear close friend who'd been trying to conceive for quite a while and um, it just wasn't happening. Anyway, the friend came to the birth and I, I got there just kind of in the last 10 to 15 minutes because it was so straightforward. And she was telling me how her friend, or reminding me because I knew this story at the time, but I'd forgotten that her friend was sitting next to, to the bath with her and holding her arm. And when she was going through transition, like just before she went into pushing, the friend who couldn't conceive that was supporting her had this like almost like this electrical rush from um, the birthing woman down through her arm like it was really tangible and into her body and it was like a real like and she was pregnant within a couple of weeks and so wow. they ended up having babies that were, that were less than a year apart in age. And she told me that story and I just thought, oh, it's great. And I'm, 
I'm writing it down, you know, as a birth story because it's just one of those magical little birth stories. So I started thinking about this, this notion of transmission Mm. And, you know, we're talking about having friends, neighbours, women who've birthed before at, at your birth and or it could be a partner that had a really great birth, his own really great birth experience. And I think, you know, I believe there's an element of transmission going on there. So Absolutely. That, that kind of energetic connection around the similar conditions and circumstances. But when someone's had one or two or three very kind of straightforward natural births and even if it was you know pretty intense and full-on they've got that you know they've got that so solid in their being and their bodies and Mm -hmm. why wouldn't there be a transmission in some regard absolutely Yeah. yeah i i think that's a really interesting concept and you know one that i hadn't thought of before and that's really well articulated yeah i like that (laughs) yeah cool um what i was going to ask you so when you started attending your friend's births you said it was only a year after your daughter's birth did you go with kids or without kids to the births i took my i took my 10 month old daughter to the birth yeah yeah but that was probably the only birth i ever went to with a baby yeah yeah how was that with a baby there. It was fine because she was just one of those really, really relaxed people and she already had a child that I knew really, really well and yep. my daughter was a happy baby. So, yeah, it was a no-brainer. It was fine. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. Again, when it's your friend and you're mm. bringing a baby and, you know, you're feeling centred and the baby's feeling centred, then everything's yeah. A-OK, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And... Um, let's go back to your first birth, because if I remember correctly, that was a hospital birth. Yes, it yes. was. Um, by default, because I, I, um, <laughs> I had this interesting experience. Now, this was 19, early 1979. Um, I was pregnant and my um, stepmother just happened to, who was quite alternative, she just happened to know that there was a doctor that was supporting home births. And um, I hadn't really even thought about where you give birth, except once I was pregnant, I realized, oh, most people go to hospital, have birth. Oh, that feels a bit strange to me. Um, I wonder why they do that, you know? (laughs) Anyway, so I had a chat with with her and she said, well, you don't have to have your baby in hospital. You know, that it's possible there's home births happening, starting to happen now on the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. So she gave me the name of this doctor and I made an appointment and his clinic was across the road from the health food shop in Nambour. And I went browsing in the health food shop, copy of Spiritual Midwifery. This is like 19, early 1979. I can't believe it was even there then. Oh, wow. Like just kind of went whoop. And I just bought it and went to my to my appointment with my gp who was not attending home births anymore but very um beautiful attitude and uh, yeah so he was just basically what can i do for you <laughs> and i said well what do you do you know when you're pregnant so he said well this is what we can do and i was like yeah okay that's fine so i had his support but there was another naturopath who was attending home births. So we got him on board as our midwife. And then I was going to birth at my 
um, father and stepmother's house because we were building a house and we had no phone and we were, you know, 50 minutes drive from the closest hospital should we need it. So that was a plan, but um, my daughter was meant to come a week after Christmas and she came a week before. Wow. And in those days there were no mobile phones. People didn't walk around with pages. So I went into labour and just kind of, we, mo we travelled down to the, my father's house and nobody home had no idea where they were. The place was locked up and it was kind of like, oh, maybe they've gone away for Christmas or something. Oh, wow. So then we didn't know how to contact them, didn't, hadn't thought about, well, what if the baby comes early? So then we drove to the naturopath's place, which is another 30 minutes drive. His place was all locked up too and we waited around for, for some hours. This was like the wee hours of the morning. So if he wasn't there, he was obviously away somewhere. He yeah. wasn't just on oh, out shopping, coming back later. And close by to him, there were some friends we had um, in, a, in a house where we used to live. So we just kind of went up and knocked on their door and said, look, can we just hang out here until our naturopath um, support person turns up? <laughs> So we we kind of hung out there all day and it was fine. The labour just kind of kept um, picking up a bit, but it was just moseying along and every now and again someone would drive down to the naturopath's house or try and call him, but no answer. So um, by late that night, uh, um, a, another doctor friend who lived just up the road and we knew him because we'd lived in the neighbourhood, but he was a heart specialist. He came down and had a bit of a chat with me and checked me out. And he said, yeah, I think you're doing really well. And I said, well, would you just help me with the baby? And he said, nah, I don't really want to do that. So, yeah. so then I rang my doctor and he said, just pop into hospital, I'll come on in. So in those days, your GP could actually pop in into hospital and support you. So that's what we did. Great. We, we went in, it was all just like hotting right up as soon as we made the decision to go. And we went in and my daughter was born about an hour later. And then we left about an hour and a half after that. And wow. Went back to the friend's <laughs> house. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. And oh. even though, even though like you afterwards, I went in, in, in spiritual midwifery, they call the contractions rushes. <laughs> bullshit you know like I was just I felt really ripped off you know like they're not rushes they're just something else but having gone through that and feeling like I could just do anything yes um, when the next when I was pregnant with the next two it was just like I'm not going I'm not going into hospital I've, I feel really confident that I can do this myself at home so yep. the next two were medic medically unassisted births and the third one was back at our place. It was the first time I felt we had a phone and I felt I knew the baby was in a good position and yeah, just felt really confident. And even though I had friends and neighbours that could have come over, I, um, I felt most comfortable with just myself and Warren and, and my daughter holding the torch and Wonderful. my four year old son was asleep beside my leg and I woke him up when his brother was being born and I said, wake up, Eden, you wanted to see the baby coming. And he woke up and looked between my legs and he said, 
no and just went back to sleep but he was he was, like, <laughs> he was literally like 12 inches away from his head was 12 inches away from his brother's head when his brother was born i love that it's so normal yeah. and naturally it's just like sleeping by your leg as you're giving birth just another yeah, day that's right and then my daughter who was holding the torch bless her she um she went around telling everybody that she came into contact with in the next few weeks what i looked like and the noise i made when i was pushing dion out Ah, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And they weren't water births? You were on a bed, you were no, saying? No, I'd, ne- I'd never even heard of water birth back then, but I, I yeah. certainly heard of it very um, early into the 80s. Yeah. yeah. And I was, I mean, I'd grown up with water, but we didn't have a bathtub at the time. And yeah, it just didn't, didn't cross my mind, really. Yeah, it's funny. I was saying this in another interview the other week, how quickly that's changed because now it seems that when I had my first, I felt like there was the only option for a home birth was a water birth. And it's not like anyone forced me into that, but culturally that's just what you do if you have a home birth, right? Um, (laughs) And for my second, I chose not to. And I found for me, it was better birthing on land. Um, but, you know, so many people swear by water birth. It's just about having those options, right? But, yeah. yeah it's interesting. Yeah. Did mm. you have any tearing or anything any of the times? No. So you were really um, probably just really allowing because you weren't being um, directed to push. You weren't, you know, you were just intuitively. No, I, think, I think I got a bit of direction with the first one in hospital. Oh, yes. I mean, it was straightforward, yeah. but, you know, that's that's just what happens. They just get you to push a bit. But... I was 22. I was young. Yeah. Um, I'd been living on the land already for a year. I'd grown up um, in, in very kind of natural environments, doing a lot of swimming and, and walking. And um, yeah, so I think that that really counted for a lot. And my mother had five and my mother is just the most easygoing character. And, you know, when she ever spoke about a birth which she didn't for a long time until I started asking her about them and now she sort of remembers more yes tell me about your birth what number were you I was number three okay yeah and um I think my mother had anesthetic with my older sister because that's just what happened that when you were about to push the baby out you were given anesthetic so you didn't have to suffer the indignity of having people watch the baby come from your body and all the mess and, you know, so, you know, when you woke up, it was like you were all cleaned up and the baby had been cleaned up and the baby would be brought to you and oh my here's God. your beautiful daughter, you know. How bizarre. What yeah. year was this? 1954. Oh, yeah, it's like that whole idea of like the 1950s perfect housewife, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of birth. <laughs> yeah, and my mum grew up like uh, on an amazing farm, you know, lots of chores and horse riding and you know amazing life and yep. was always quite active and um but she she hated the anesthetic and she said afterwards I'm never going to do that again so the, the the next four of us were just very straightforward birds and she told me the story the other day about my bro- my brother who's four years younger than me that when she went to the doctor pregnant with with him the doctor just checked her out and said, yeah, yeah, well, you're pregnant. He said, I'll just see you when you come for the birth. Oh, I mean, wow. that was, <laughs> and, and also back then women were told, you know, just come and check in with me if you're not feeling well, you know, like mm. anything doesn't feel right, come and check with me. But the women all back then, most of them were having 
at least four, five, six. Everybody in our neighbourhood had five, six, seven kids. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, yeah. Um, it yeah. was kind of considered to be much more of a, uh, a normal thing to do to have babies than, than it is these days where it's kind of really quite a considered decision for most people. Yeah, but also yeah. it seems like it wasn't, despite that the anaesthetic story, just wasn't hyper medicalized like you were kind of less left to your own devices in a way and um able to yeah trust your body and if you felt like something wasn't right then yeah you could go see a medical professional that's right and the women that had two or three little kids at home they even though you know it was it was the era era where you put on a nice dress and stuff when your husband came home from work heaven forbid but um (laughs) the women were really busy in the day with those toddlers you know they didn't have time there was no we didn't have television until the 60s so they weren't sitting around on couches watching tv or sitting at computers they're just being busy cooking and cleaning and looking after the kids you know yeah um yeah there was a bit more mobility um, but getting back to my birth, yes, my mum had hepatitis when she conceived me and um, she was quite unwell and jaundiced and that kind of thing, even though she has an incredibly robust constitution. So she was, you know, when you have hepatitis, you feel nauseous. So she didn't know she was pregnant with me until she was five months pregnant Wow! because she'd been dealing with the hepatitis and then kind of came through that. And suddenly she realized that there was something else going on. And, and when, when it was found, you know, that she was pregnant, there was quite a lot of concern. They thought that I wouldn't be born as a normal child. There would be something wrong with me and um, kind of expressed all this concern to my mother. And my mother was just like, look, I'm, I'm fine. Everything feels fine. You know, it'll be okay. And she said, you know, it was just that beautiful thing of even though she felt really confident that at, when I came out and was completely normal, she just thought I was the most beautiful baby Aww. ever because there'd been this kind of fear put into her about me not being normal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah so it's normal anyway. Well, and also that's just so, <laughs> yeah, that's so relevant today though, because I think that's so um, common for so many women that they've had a lot of fear put in them with all these tests and ultrasounds and this and that to yeah. say, oh my God, your baby's this, your baby's that. And mm. they spend their whole pregnancy just freaked out essentially mm. and not zen and calm and um, it's this constant kind of questioning of, um yeah their bodies and their intuition and i think sarah buckley talks about um ultrasound and just you know okay ultrasound who knows uh if it's dangerous or not um physically look there's studies to say that it probably is but we don't know 100 percent. but the bigger one is the mental kind of thing isn't it if Mm they're saying that this is wrong with your baby that is wrong with your baby you have to live those nine months or however long with all that worry and that is more to me anyway more detrimental to the baby's health when you're not feeling centered rather than the potential benefit which i can't see much benefit to knowing something is wrong Mm. um yeah so it's really interesting (laughs) yeah it's very interesting 
Um, okay, so your birth was fairly straightforward. All your baby's births were straightforward. Have you got grandchildren? Yes, I do. And how, how were their births? I'm really interested about your potential involvement or not in it. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm only going to talk about my daughter's Daughter. yep. two births. Um, yep. And she chose to have her babies at home and she chose to um, not have ultrasounds and she chose to have me there. And when she was pregnant, I said to her, darling, I know I've said this to you many times, but you know, I would totally respect any decision that you're going to make about where you want to have your baby and who you want there. And please don't feel like, you know, it's going to be the end of the world for me. And she just looked at me and go, don't be ridiculous, mum. Of course I want you there. <laughs> <laughs> We're very good mates. And um, yeah, and she and her beautiful partner. And I said, well, if I'm going to be there, I want to do all the same prep with you that I would do. I, I don't want to make any assumptions about what you know and don't know. And she'd already supported a friend through birth at the age of 19 and mm -hmm. blew everyone away in the hospital. Wow. Um, with what she didn't realise that she knew just from having been around me yeah. working with women for years. And they really took it all on board and they did all of the prep and the homework and she ended up having um, a five-hour water birth at home wow. with me in attendance and her next-door neighbour who'd also had home births with me. So, Oh, how wonderful. You know, that, was, that was really beautiful. And um, she really didn't like her labour. Like she dealt with it really, really well. She was amazing, but it was just one of those really driving, really strong, no-nonsense labours. And she's a real no-nonsense kind of person. So she birthed her 10-and-a-half-pound daughter. Wow. With a compound presentation in five hours from absolute start to absolute finish. Wow. So it was, it was pretty rugged, but... Um, yeah, amazing. And then the next one was born in the same house three years later. And um, yeah, we were there again. And it was much, uh, it was still quick, but it was smoother for her. So that was kind of healing in a way. Yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, oh, how lovely. Yeah. It's so beautiful to hear those stories of it through the generations. Um, yeah. And her. Yeah, really coming to do that because she wanted to. Um, and like you say, you, you said to her, you know, it's your choice. Don't do it just because of what yeah. I believe. And I had that recently with my sister-in-law. She um, chose to have a free birth. And there definitely was points in there that I was like, please just don't do this because I'm doing it. You know, like you have to do it because mm. you want to do it. And I, I did have moments of like mistrust, like I really hope she's not doing it just because I did it because I want it to be her decision. And yeah, it was absolutely her decision in the end and they had the yeah. most amazing, beautiful birth. And yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think any woman or any person who's pregnant makes that choice lightly. I don't think people say, this is what I want to do and where I want to be because they think it's trendy or cool exactly. or whatever. They do it, you know, I mean, it's, it's too big a process to, um, regard it like that, you know, absolutely. Like, I, you just got to trust that 
everybody's making the right choice about where they want to be and where they feel the most secure. And yeah. if, it is a, it, if, it, if it is a choice that's being made from somebody else's pressure, then they're probably not going to end up being where they thought they were. Exactly. That's a really good point. I think that's really true. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of talk in the free birth world at the moment of people uh, saying, oh, you know, yeah, it's a fad or people are doing, and oh, yeah, I just don't understand that point of view because like you say, to make that decision to birth at home unassisted is not a decision made in apathy. It's a decision and the same with homeschooling. You know, We get a lot of flack for homeschooling our kids. And it's like, we're not doing this because we're lazy and we can't be bothered. It's the absolute opposite. We're so invested in the process and the, um, yeah, the choice we're doing it as a very proactive thing. And I would say that's majority of people that choose to uh, free birth or have an unassisted birth or even have a home birth. Um, yeah. Whereas, and I, yeah. I actually have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about free birth being used as a bit of a scapegoat to further the cause of um, mid, more midwives, you know, being able to privately practice or become more autonomous because it's becoming very cliched and I've, I don't kind of read lots and lots of articles, but I've seen it often enough to know that it's it's definitely around this thing of um, because of the the lack of or the difficulty in um, the midwifery prep profession being able to support women with home birth. Um, more and more women are being forced underground into risky free births. You know. <laughs> I know. I hear this a lot. I was talking the other day about this. There's um, that, um, and I'll have to get her on here so I can say it to her face, but Hannah Dalen, who is a researcher, she has done that book. Um, what's it called? It's, yeah, it's about birthing outside the system. I don't know if you know it, but it's exactly that, um, that, uh, what's the word? Um, that thought that we've got to try and get women back in the system and support them because they're doing these dangerous free births. And if only we could support them like X, Y, or Z. And it's like, no women. I mean, maybe there are women that are forced to free birth maybe. Um, but <laughs> it would be the vast majority, vast majority of women are choosing to free birth because that's what they want to do. Yeah. And it's, it, it's not necessarily because they can't find anybody to support them or they can't um, afford to do it, to have to employ somebody to be at their home birth or because they're worried about what might happen to them when they go to hospital. It's just like, it's just, just my inclination. Absolutely. You know, I, and I know that if I change my mind at any point, I can go to the hospital, it's there, but it creates this very clear definition between this is a natural, normal process. And then, you know, the medical system is there if it somehow there's some sort of complication or emergency that requires medical intervention. But that line gets so blurred once people are actually in the system. But getting back to the scapegoating, you know, <laughs> of free birth, it's like you could use the same logic to go because there's so few um, privately practicing midwives in the community able to support women in home birth. 
so many women are being forced into the hospitals to oh, have yes. dangerous interventions, you know, and, and obstetric violence. Like you could get, you know, that's like another extreme of it. But I love that flip. I love that flip. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. So that's, a, that's a, like, and you know, that's, that's where I get a little disappointed because I think solidarity is so important, like not just solidarity between the people that support physiological birth, but everybody who is supporting birth, yes. you know, it doesn't need to be a competition or a really divided um, argument or a political argument because we all, we all want the same thing. We all want mums and babes to be well and we want communities to be healthy and the best thing, the best way to achieve that is to educate um, people about not only their choices, but about what's, what they can do to prepare for birth, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there may be the odd person that just gets caught out with a free birth that has not done any preparation. Um, and by the way, it seems to be much more acceptable if you call, um, you know, medically unassisted births, medically unassisted births rather than free births because free births kind of has this implication for a lot of people that it's so free that you don't have anybody helping or anybody there. You're just kind of being instinctive and, and that's great if that, you know, that's going to work for a whole bunch of people too. <laughs> but if you say I had a medically unassisted home birth, it's got the medical word in it. So people are instantly accepting of it because it's medically unassisted, but it's still, yeah, <laughs> it's still kind of within that, that paradigm of, of thinking Yes, is nuts, but um, yeah. yeah. But as we know, there's lots and lots of people have medically unassisted um, births all around the world with um, sometimes on their own, sometimes with their partner and that's culturally acceptable or they have skilled providers not medically skilled but skilled in yes their, in their particular profession and you know we're blessed to have them because as much as we want the the clinical medical model of care available to every woman on the planet should she require it um it's not it's very success successfully implemented in some places but it's very complex and untidy and raises more concerns than there were before we were trying to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's so many, um, you know, everyone says, oh, well, when women birthed unassisted, everybody died. You know, if you think of developing countries or anything, but what they failed to see is the reason why women are not doing well in birth in some of these developing countries is not because of the birth process. It's because of their lack of nutrition, the poverty they're living in, the war-torn countries they may be living in. It's all yeah. that, and, that and issue. More, and, and the big one is isolation, you know, yep. that even if they have medical help available, it might be four hours down the road or whatever, and they can't leave their homes four weeks before they're due um, to go be close to a medical facility because they're required in their village to be mothers to their children and to work, you know, because if, if people don't do that, then they don't get on, you know. Like yeah. It, it's kind of essential. It's subsistence level existence. So, 
yeah. yeah a lot of it is just not being able to access access help when they but they wouldn't i mean from my where i stand i don't think they would even need that help if they were healthy people but unfortunately these women are not nourished uh with food you know for example um what is it called i forget the um, name it's like when some countries in africa where the babies come out and they're getting like basically they tear right through to the anus and oh, the fistulas. yes that that word and it's not because um you know they're just prone to it it's because these women are malnourished in childhood and so they never form their pelvises properly it's not because they don't have medical care it's the lack of nutrition in their early years and they're having babies very young and all these kinds of things whereas we think we're saving them and yes they do need the medical care now because they are malnourished but what if we fix the cause of the problem rather than coming in yeah. it's the same with vaccinations you know if you actually had a healthy immune system you wouldn't need vaccinations but because these people are all so sick then we put a band-aid over the top you know yeah and i think in some ways you know um it seemed to be easier to somehow transpose what we know we have available to us or have the ideal of that mm. to transpose that into cultures that need care rather than fix their problems internally yeah, exactly. But yeah. how much easier would it be? You wouldn't just fix one problem like birth. You would fix millions of problems by making sure people had food and water and yeah. a safe place to live. It's so simple, but we're yeah. trying to do all these Band-Aid fixes. And it's not to say these Band-Aid fixes aren't necessary because they are. People are already here. They already, you know, don't have the food. So you need to deal with that as well. But you really need to go to the cause first. Anyway, I'm yeah. being a bit ranty. <laughs> no, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, my concern, because I, I every year go to Lao, uh, Laos with a team of midwives and we yep. teach hands-on um, and emergency skills in very remote areas because they're these yep. young, barely trained health workers that are put out into these small, um, you know, sometimes clinics that have nothing or not, 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 don't even have the resources that are supposed to be there in order to deal with situations. Yep. And it's frightening for them, you know? Yeah. So we go out and we um, boost morale and really um, confidence in, in the skills that they have to deal with situations that they might not be able to transfer for. Yeah. And bring it back to hands-on first aid that, you know, if they have, the required medication that's great if they don't then continue to do what you need to do don't just not do it because you don't have the medication and you're waiting to transfer in an, in an impossible situation but i mean yeah. my concern about the the global um ideal and the funding that comes for that is that it's now um generally conditional in that if a, a developing country is to receive international funding to establish clinics in uh you know remote more remote places um the condition is that none of that money goes towards supporting the traditional care providers or um traditional birth attendants that that or the medicine people that may already exist in those 
surrounding villages, the, the cultural cultures can be very, very different from one village to the next. But there's, they're not to support those people within the village. The money mm -hmm. is not to go towards supporting them. It's to go directly into establishing the clinics so the clinics are available. So then it becomes an undermining, a cultural undermining of what was already in place and to some degree working, even though there may have been difficulties, there may have been baby deaths and mother deaths. It's not because anybody is ever intending for that to happen. It's just that everybody's doing the best they can. And Absolutely. That, that happens and then the cult, their, their particular culture has ways to um, deal with that and integrate it. But as soon as you start undermining that, you're setting up this glamorous model that really doesn't have a lot of relationship to how things would have been before. Mm. And it becomes very separated. And even even with the training we do in, in Laos, we uh, even though our ideal would be to be um, bringing in any of the traditional birth attendants, it's conditional for us to be there in that particular country that we we can't do that even though wow. we, we go with our own funding and but we're not to do that we're not to support the um we can support healthcare workers that come from that village but we can't support the people who would have traditionally been part of that village how frustrating care yeah it's really and how counterintuitive really yeah yeah it's a bit like i always kind of think it's a bit like just bringing in a bulldozer, you know, into a, into a forest and um, saying we want to grow something else. And instead of kind of approaching it as a permaculture model where you take out what's not useful and um, necessary and replacing it and allowing the general ecosystem to support everything else that comes in, you know, you just flatten the whole lot get rid of it and then plant a whole lot of a monoculture that doesn't really necessarily you don't even know is going to have a relationship to that particular soil type or that land or that community exactly yeah it's yeah. that whole idea of why not fix something that's broken rather than completely re replace it you know yeah yeah there are uh, a lot of good people doing good work at a grassroots level around the world for sure trying um to i'm really interested I forgot that you did the work in Laos. Um, so from your point of view, you've obviously seen a lot of interesting things. Why do you think there are infant deaths or mother deaths? Like what are you seeing that could change for them? Like, I, Of course, medical care, um, but I'm, I'm talking from like a base level, like a cause level. What are you thinking? Oh, I think educating the people in the village themselves about, because I'm a big believer in demystifying birth knowledge yep. and sharing it around. Yep. You know? So just educating the women in the village about, um, you know, the same as we would do here, like tr trusting what they're feeling in their own bodies and um Uh, educating them about the actual process of birth and why they would feel certain things and what their own signs are if they if, if suddenly something wasn't feeling okay for them mm -hmm. and you know they may already have that and it's just really difficult to coordinate um, how to get help to them or get them to help when stuff like that happens but um, 
yeah, and it's as you said, some villages are just very, very poor, and some in some villages the traditions that would have originally come from China, I guess, because where I work, a lot of the different ethnicities have sort of made their way from Tibet and China and from Vietnam, that sometimes they become distorted over time. So mm. the taboos around certain foods, um, eating certain foods or not eating certain foods are passed down by the mothers. And um, if it worked for her, she will be very strong about passing that on. But sometimes they're not great traditions yeah um and they just but they need gentle education about that you know they don't need to be accused and um undermined in their cultural relationships you mm -hmm. just need to be really uplifted and all you know be supported in in an amazing job that they're doing yeah yeah how and, and, and the other thing is that you know how crazy is this that in a country as affluent as ours, you know, healthcare is free for whatever we need. And in a country like Laos, they still have to pay for medicines and, and healthcare. So for people who live at a subsistence level where they may just have enough um, to have extra money to provide for extra medical care, is going to throw the whole family into really deep debt for a long period of time. So they may have to give up, um, you know, their rice growing land or some mm. livestock or whatever to pay for the extra care that they need. So they may be quite reluctant to get help initially when they need it and just kind of wait things out and see whether it's going to resolve. And also just, I don't know, I always go back to the mental kind of thing. If you're living in a space that is so poor that you can't afford, you know, the medical care that you might want or anything else, then how mentally are you going to be for, prepared for that birth? Because you're in a kind of flight or fight response all the time because you don't have all your needs met. It's pretty simple, mm. right? Yeah. Well, there is, but there's poverty. And then there's what we think is poverty, but is actually not poverty. It's just poverty because we label it um, poverty because we can see that people don't, they're actually quite healthy and they're growing all their own food and mm. people support each other in the community and they have lots of domestic livestock and vegetables, you know, that they're quite... Um, self-sufficient. Self-sufficient, but they don't have extra yep. to pay the, you know, and over there, like if you need antibiotics or medicines, which come straight from China, but they're generic brands, you, they're still paying the same prices we would pay for things in Australia, which to me just mm. seems outrageous, you know, because $5 over there is huge. Or $10 is, is a huge amount that most village people don't have. Yeah, absolutely. And then there are villages that are very poor as well, but, um, yeah, I think our definition of poverty, yeah, is a little bit sometimes not so accurate. Yep. Yep. I see that. Um, let's talk about birth preparation. What yes. uh, do you, what's your process? What do you recommend? <laughs> okay. My main recommendations are get into your body and out of your head. Mm -hmm. Um and if somebody says, oh, well, how do I do that? I say, well, for a start, getting into your body out of your head requires um, making time. Uh, 
because one, you know, I was talking about Rhea Dempsey's new book. One of the beautiful things in there, there was a woman that she was um, in relationship with and the woman said to her, like, I feel like I know everything about birth because she was, she'd read and researched everything, but she said, I know nothing about giving birth. Mm. And I think this is a very common kind of scenario in our culture where we have so much at our fingertips and everything's on the phone and the computer and, you know, we can research till the cows come home but do we take the time to just do things and I'm not just talking three times a week going to yoga or going for a walk it's like imbuing your whole um hopefully preconception time but your whole pregnancy time with with everyday practices mm -hmm. even if you've got a couple of other kids you know just flopping around with the kids and having a nap and just calming your nervous system because the problem with our culture today is that we have all these things that are supposedly going to make our lives um, better in terms of we have more leisure time. Mm -hmm. But most of what we're doing in our leisure time is, is firing up our um, nervous system. So a lot of us are in what's known as sympathetic overdrive absolutely Which makes it really difficult for the calming mechanisms within the parasympathetic nervous system to um, come into balance so there's everybody's in a bit of a state of inflammation and over over adrenalized and um, you know I mean fortunately pregnancy is such a powerful process that it can pretty much force women into being a bit more subdued um, and, you know, it, it can still really work, but those highly instinctive self-regulatory mechanisms in the body that govern birth are going to work better if the system is, um, calm and less mm -hmm. inflamed. And there's such a separation for us between, you know, what we do for what we think we do for work and what we think we do for leisure, that it's not part of the flow and this is an interesting thing to watch in Laos where they don't have the villages they don't have that I mean everybody yes. likes to sit down and have a meal together and lie around and you know maybe have a little whiskey or something like that when they get a chance to every now and again but through the day they're they're continually moving because they're growing their food and then preparing food and they're looking after their kids and doing whatever else needs to be done and there's no this is work and this is leisure. Whereas yes. we can separate those things out or we go, right, I'm pregnant. I'm going to my three yoga classes a week, you know, so that should be enough kind of yeah. thing. It's, it's, it's not, Yeah, it's actually not enough. You know, it's something that we have to be um, kind of aware of pretty constantly of just slowing down and allowing our bodies to soften. Absolutely. And, yeah, so, so the preparation that, that I kind of offer, which a lot of which is outlined in my Down to Earth Birth book, mm. is really just about understanding the process of birth, mm. but also, you know, really feeling into your body and knowing that your baby's actually going to come out of your pelvis, not going to come out of your head. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not a cerebral experience. And not only is the baby going to come out of your vagina, that most of what happens in the action is happening in the back side mm. of the pelvis and getting women's 
and, and their partner's attention into that's really powerful because from pregnant person's point of view, belly's in the front. They kind of think their vagina's in the front and they know the contractions are going to happen in the front and the baby's going to get squeezed out, right? So it's, it's all sort of um, easy to think that it's all a front of body process. But in actual mm -hmm. fact, we know that the baby comes through the pelvis in this beautiful curve and the baby mm. comes to the back of the pelvis and has to swing past the sacrum and swing past all those interconnecting soft tissues that are within the pelvis and support the organs and the womb and then has to come down past the pelvic floor muscles. And it's very, very back side of the body focused and it's very anal once that baby's moving on down. And when you show that to parents and then you get them to feel into their own bodies and literally feel their own body parts and explore that, it's like, great, you're in, you know, this is it. This is, this is great. This is where you're going to be and this is where you need to be. There's all kinds of amazing things that you can do in terms of very simple and fun homework to keep bringing you back, keep bringing you back, keep bringing you back into your body. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's great advice because yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. The first time I was still working, I was living in Sydney, Sydney as a place in general, is just like, you know, crazy all the time. Um, and the second time, because I was in Perth and living a much more relaxed lifestyle, I could see that just how much that was of benefit to me and yet getting out of my head. The first time I knew everything, I was like, I'm having a home birth. I need to research every little thing. And I think there is some real beauty in naivety sometimes mm. because you're not in your head if you're <laughs> naive about the process or I don't know, maybe that's not the best way to articulate it, but I, I just think we're so intellectual these days and it's great to know all these things about the body and about anatomy and biology and whatever. But yeah, we just do need to go back to, yeah, that body work, getting into your body as you say, because yeah. And that's, <laughs> the, that's kind of the middle ground between, oh, birth's just really instinctive. It works. Don't worry about it. Um, your body will, you know, trust your body will know, know what to do. And the other extreme, which is, well, if that doesn't work out, then you've got the medical rescue, you know, like there's yeah. this incredibly rich garden of, of knowledge and wisdom and, um, body awareness and body's body-based skills that can really help you to be aware of how much you need to be in your body, but, but also help you to be in a calmer place and settle your nervous system and allow those instinctive processes to really unfold the best that they can. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. couldn't agree more. Um, talking of your book, tell us a little bit about that. Is that still in print? Because yes, it is okay. Because yes. I was getting mixed uh, um, reviews about being able to get it or not. <laughs> no, I just don't have a lot of people stocking it. I, okay, I, I have a, f a few people, but it's not one of those books. It's just going to be, you know, in a bookshop. Yep. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So you need to get onto the birthwork.com website in order to um, access get your hands the book. on that one. Yeah. It's yeah. a really great book. Tell me about the process of writing that book and how it came about. And all well, of that. that book was kind of in the pipeline for a while because over the years that I was working with birth through the 80s and the 90s, it was like I, I was de developing, I was growing a bigger stack of handouts to give to parents on information that I thought was really relevant to having a home birth mm -hmm. um, and quite a bit of it relevant to having a home birth within our particular um, community cultural ethos because it wasn't stuff that I was necessarily finding anywhere else so I was putting that together and then I you know it was a really big job printing it up every now and again I'd have the whole lounge room covered in papers and be stacking and putting <laughs> things together and then you know I'd take the folder to somebody I was working with and then their neighbor or their friend say oh can I get one of those too and so it was just that thing of like okay I'm gonna have to publish the handouts right yeah and I didn't think it was going to end up like the down to earth birth book. I just have to, I just have to have them printed so that I, I'm not doing all this copying. But I, before that happened, I was working on my birth workbook and it, it was kind of a, an eight years in the process book because I would only work on it when I had a few days in a row to get into it. And I would not do it unless I felt really good about doing it. It was a meditation and mm -hmm. a downloading. And once again, a downloading of, of stuff that I felt I wasn't reading about anywhere else, but had been in, in the context of birth, but had been really important stuff for me to learn about. And because that book was quite well received, um, I felt like I had to make a good job of this printing up of the handouts. Yeah. So that's how the Down to Earth Birth book came into being. And I kind of um, pulled in uh, extra in information and, um put it together yeah but i mean both books i had no absolutely no ambition about whether it was going to sell well it was just no nah, i'll just get a certain number printed up and then that'll be great you know for for people that i'm working with whether i'm going to be there or not it'll be available to them but i i had no big thing about publishing it to the wider world or that people would really love it or anything <laughs> They do, so that's been really pleasing. It's really nice. What I really um, love about you um, is this whole idea of kind of flow that you have. Like you don't force things. Like I sometimes feel that I can get a bit like maybe it's a modern day thing. I've got to get this done and this done and this done where you kind of just really have allowed over your lifetime and things have just created and happened, not without effort, I'm sure, but mm. you kind of allowed it like with the birth work you kind of said suddenly you were just attending births and it wasn't nothing seemed forced no I, I mean I feel so grateful to have had that kind of opportunity to ease into birth work that way without it being this kind of career choice and then being really kind of confronted by well which path do I choose and once I was in birth work of course I was often thinking maybe I should just go and get a medical degree or maybe I, but I didn't want to move to the city to do that I'm not not a city person so it was kind of like no everything's actually working fine the way it is yeah I'm not going to push it and I guess I'm a combination of um 
um, quite methodical in that I'll just kind of keep up with things until I've reached this thing that I know in my heart and mind is something that I really want to do. Um, but I also, every day, I just pinch myself, Natalie, at what a, a you know, a blessed existence that I have and such a, an enormously rich life. And so it's, it's a combination of taking those beautiful opportunities when they present themselves, you know, like somebody's offering you some sort of gift to experience with them. And you just go, yeah, great. Thank you. <laughs> Rather than, Oh, I don't know if I'm the right person. You know, I don't have the confidence to do that. And yeah, yeah. To just, just go, yeah, let's connect over that. And let's just have this interaction together and see what unfolds from that. And, you know, be tuned in together. Yeah, yeah that's wonderful. What wonderful wisdom there. Um, I want to talk about, so are you still doing birth work now? You're still attending? Just a few, Just a, a few, few a year. Yeah, which was my plan from, from quite some time ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's definitely births I, I can't say no to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For example, one that's coming up, the father of the baby is, is actually um, someone who was born with me at home 28 years ago. Oh, what a beautiful circle. How <laughs> so gorgeous. It's like, it's like, yeah, of course, you know, of course. Oh, that is so gorgeous. Yeah. Um, what I was going to ask, um, I've been talking a little bit about this in my last interview, this idea of responsibility as a birth worker. She was saying for midwives these days, so much responsibility is put on them. Like if anything goes wrong, it's their fault or whatever. How yeah. do you navigate that in, um, with your clients for want of a better word? <laughs> parents that I work with. Yeah. yeah. Parents. I hate that word clients. Yeah. I yeah. know clients such a yeah, distant um, kind of word. Strange, uh, slightly separating between yes. the professionals and the non-professionals, isn't it? Exactly. Um, and I'm fortunate that I'm in a position that I don't need or have to use that word. Yes, I don't like that word um, at all. So what was the question again? My oh, question was, yeah, yes, yes, to kind yes. of get to an understanding with them, especially when, yeah, I don't know we'll if see, you yeah. See, being responsible for the outcome is part of the medical paradigm. Yes. And, um, yeah, it's not necessarily part of mine. So my responsibility, if I'm going to work with somebody, is I say, once we decide to work together, um, you know, I'm really happy to make that commitment and I'm really happy that you make that commitment, but it's a commitment that can change at any time. And if I've, if, you know, pretty much only working with people I know or part of my direct or um, connected community these mm -hmm. days. But in past times, if it was somebody I'd never met before, I would be very, very honest about my experience and um, qualifications. And I would say, I would only be prepared to work with you if you are prepared to be self-responsible. And I would outline what I thought that meant and that means that any decisions that are being made around um, what you do for preparation in pregnancy and what you do through the birthing time are 
your responsibility, but I come with a body of experience in order to be able to inform you of whether what I think is going on is within the range of normal or not normal. And that if there's some, and I have always prepared parents absolutely for um, what I would call, you know, variations of normal or um, standard complications that happen like baby not breathing, mother bleeding too much, shoulders getting stuck, um, unexpected breach, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's important that everybody, even whether they were planning to have a birth with me or not, but everybody ideally needs to be prepared for birth as though it could happen with nobody else there. Yes. And it's certainly very helpful to have some basic first aid skills and awareness in place of what might might happen that might need prompt attention and that most of those things needing prompt attention will be resolved very quickly with prompt attention they're not going to be resolved by hanging out the door waiting for an ambulance to arrive half an hour later because you think they're the only ones that know how to deal with a particular situation um, so but i also say to the parents should we be dealing with something um, a little bit unexpected or a little bit outside the normal, then we will all be first responders together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good it's way not to put it. me who's going to be the first responder. We will be first responders together and I will include and involve you in, in that process so that we will all be responding and making decisions together. And that's, that's really not part of the medical approach or paradigm because the way they deal with complications is often um, very, you know, they're called protocols and you do this and then you do that and you do that. And yep. quite often it would involve medication or it would involve some sort of gadgetry that doesn't involve the parents and their particular set of skills. Yep. And I understand that like, it works, you know, it can work as well, but there Just is a different, a different way of approach. approaching it. Yeah. And, and we need to remember that we need to remember what those ways are. Yeah. 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 And um, I think that's a really interesting point that you said before about everybody preparing for a potential free birth or unassisted birth, whatever you want to call it. Um, because again, I come back to the mind how different would everybody be approaching birth if they were approaching it by the fact that maybe I'll have this baby without anybody there because they'll start taking responsibility and thinking about things more yeah. rather than just giving their power away to somebody else from day one and being told what to do. Yeah. And it happens like there's women who, who have decided they're going to have an elective cesarean and they end up birthing in the bathroom at home yes by themselves and it's it's frightening for them and yes i remember and it, yeah. one woman i worked with she'd had her first that's what happened for her with her first baby and when she went back to the hospital and had the interview with with the obstetrician which was what was happening with this particular hospital and she said you know this is what happened for me last time you know what do you suggest that i do to prepare for the eventuality that that might not happen again and he said just call the ambulance. And there was no um, kind of real acknowledgement of what she was actually saying, which was like, I was actually frightened and I didn't, I couldn't actually get to my phone um, 
to call the ambulance. Yeah. Um, and there was no handout. It was no like, oh, well, um, you know, I'll send you through some handouts on how to just deal with a quick unassisted birth at home, you know, should yeah. you be stuck in that situation again. It was just like, oh, outside of that frame of reference and just call the ambulance, we know how to deal with that situation. But she wanted to know how she could deal with it. She could empower herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is why I've got those sections in my book because I just think, you know, people, there are handouts around. I mean, I'm not the only one that's done it, but it, it's almost like nobody thinks to, to give them out yeah. to people as just a general, this, this might be really helpful for you should you get caught on the side of the road, you know. Yeah, and also the fact that when you're mentally preparing for it and you are replacing that fear with knowledge, then you're less likely to have complications because you feel safer. It's this yes. idea of having that oxytocin actually releasing like an accidental free birth potentially is dangerous because they're not wanting to do that. Yeah. They don't feel safe and they're not going to have that oxytocin uh, release potentially uh, because, yeah, they're not feeling safe. And then guess what happens? Hemorrhaging, all these other problems because yeah. the oxytocin is never released. Yeah. So if you are prepared for that, then you're safer yet again. <laughs> yeah, and certainly for couples preparing to birth at home, um, it's like you really confront those possibilities. And if you yes. can confront those possibilities and feel like you've got an understanding of what's required in that situation, um, you know, you, you're either going to feel okay with that and just go, yep, still feel great, still feel like that's all something that I can um, deal with at the time, or it's mm. going to cause you to feel really unsettled and you may decide to, you know, renegotiate um yes your backup plans or your contingencies or who's going to be there or yeah I, th I think it's a really funny thi uh, thing I um had some contact via Instagram uh with a very popular podcast called Australian Birth Stories um anyway the story's long I'll just cut it short she said she would not take any planned free birth stories on the podcast mm. And it didn't make any sense. She would only take accidental free births. And I thought it's so weird that something that somebody's taken responsibility to plan for and understand is seen as irresponsible, but yet yes. when it's accidental, then that's completely fine. Yes. It doesn't make any sense to me. I think the more responsibility, responsible thing would be to plan for it. <laughs> mm. But um, anyway. Yeah. I had and a bit I, of a... I certainly have never, ever encouraged anybody to have a free birth or have a home birth. It's like they have to really want to have that for me mm. to be with them, even though that was my experience and I yes, quite comfortable with it, all things yes. considered. I don't go around, you know, advocating that I think that that's the best way or that I think you would be a really good candidate for that. It's just like, no you have to do what you think is, is okay for yourself, but, and what makes you feel most secure. Exactly. But you can't do that unless you're aware of all the, the options and the possibilities. And one of those possibilities is that you could be stuck in a situation where you're on the side of the road, with no mobile reception and you're birthing. You yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think that is also a good point of um, giving all possibilities. One of my guests a few episodes ago, she said she was never, ever given the option of a home birth. And she had a hospital birth for her first. And she said she really had wished, she went on to have two beautiful home births after that, but she really wished that was even an option when she went to see her doctor or whatever. It just wasn't in her um, consciousness at that time. And I think that is also important. It's not about forcing people to have home births or telling them you should have a home birth, but it's about putting that knowledge out there that this is also an option that's completely valid if you choose so. And it's within your rights and it's it's completely legal. If that's exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it is that fine line of, you know, never, ever forcing anyone to do anything. But here's the information if you wish to. Yeah. So go there. But, um, Jenny, we probably should wrap it up. If people do want to contact you or uh, order your book, what is the best way to do so? Um, well, you can contact me through the website, birthwork.com. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And you can also... That's the easiest way. And you can order your book on there also. Oh, yes. 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 Wonderful. We can do. Um, so just before we go, I just wanted yes. to kind of say that, that my practice now is I'm teaching a lot. Um, I'm also a spinning babies approved trainer now, which is, is a great privilege, but I've been teaching pretty much what I take couples through teaching that to, to great mixes of care providers and body workers for quite a long time. And I also do one-on-one consultations, um, doing prep sessions for people that, um, maybe they're going to birth in the hospital public system. And they know they're not going to get that same kind of preparation or maybe they're going to be with a midwife who doesn't have time for that kind of preparation or maybe they're going to have a free birth and they just want to have some upskilling and I'm not going to be there at all. Um, Or maybe um, they have some sort of extraordinary uh, pelvic discomfort going on. And that's my other specialty is that I, do body work for oh yes let's talk helping. about that a little bit yeah I do um, one-on-one sessions uh, with with um, women who are experiencing kind of extraordinary pelvic pain or unusual discomforts in pregnancy and it may be related to the birth they had before that's sort of come up more strongly through this pregnancy and um, yeah, a lot of it is about kind of getting the pelvis balanced and aligned both externally and internally. And sometimes it's scar uh, remediation work. And sometimes it's, um, yeah, just working with other parts of the body in order for that to be integrated well. Mm. Yeah, really interesting work. Not a lot of people do that kind of work. but No, it's... and the reason that um, that's, kind of developed the way it has and my friend Fiona Hallinan does this as well is because we've both come into birth, to birth pretty much as body workers and then had this kind of extraordinary privilege of all of this experience with physiological birth natural birth and being able to see what happens with with the body work um, in that context so a lot of bodywork modality trainings don't really get to have that experience or the understanding of how you would apply the that particular modality to the pregnant birthing 
post-birth woman. And we happen to have had that experience, which is just a, an incredible thing for us. And it's really beautiful to share it around. But yeah, it's something that um, is a lovely thing to offer up. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, do you offer training in that? Um, we do have uh, workshop intensives where we share the body information and also the body work skills and they're the the more advanced body work skills you kind of have to come to the first part of the training to do the second part but it's yeah we definitely share them and say go forth and practice <laughs> oh that sounds cool okay yeah. well if anyone is interested in that uh check out jenny's website it sounds yeah. like you've got a lot of uh goodies there that people probably want to check out so thank you jenny thank you so much natalie thank uh, you thank you so much for yeah giving us your time today and thank you for all the work that you've done over the years it's, it's my pleasure Absolute yeah, it's a pleasure it's been an honor thank chatting you. to you bye bye thanks for listening to the renegade mama podcast that's all for today but if you would like to connect with me i am on facebook as the renegade mama podcast or on insta as the underscore renegade underscore mama you can also visit me on my new website therenegademama.co and there you'll be able to find out more information about the show our latest birthing classes and much more the renegade mama is all about following your intuition not the institution we are sovereign we are free. If you like the Renegade Mama podcast, then leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or our Facebook page. The Renegade Mama is released weekly on both Apple iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your podcasts.